0: Welcome. This is the Two Shot Podcast. I'm Craig Parkinson. Thank you so much for subscribing and tuning in to this episode, because this week it is Michael Smiley. Now, if you don't know who Michael Smiley is, shame on you. Go and have a look at a brilliant film directed by Ben Wheatley, called Kill List. It stars Neil Maskell also. It's a fantastic film. You may have first been introduced to him in the Simon Pegg, Jessica Hines sitcom space, playing tyres all those years ago. Of course, we don't really talk about that. We talk about other things. We talk about growing up in Hollywood, Not that one, the one in Northern Ireland. We talk about his rebellious nature, we talk about his stand-up comedy career, his training in his late 20s, his early 30s, but a very different kind of training. Look, it's a really brilliant interview, a great chat. Uh, Me and producer Griff came to London, popped the kettle on, and we sat down with Mr Michael Smiley. Right, it's gone, so I suppose we should start. Um, I am sat here having a cup of tea in London with Mr Michael Smiley. How are you, mate? I'm good, Craig. I'm good, mate. I've just had a very strong cup of tea. I asked her
1: for a strong cup of tea and leave the bag in, and she made me a strong cup of tea and she left the bag in. So I've got, like, tea from the 1950s. Which is how you want it.
0: Wow. Everything's <laughs> just went slightly monochrome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael... When you were growing up in Hollywood... Yeah. And obviously, for those who don't know, I'm not talking about Hollywood in America. I'm talking about Hollywood, Northern Ireland. Were you from a a big family?
1: No. um, There was three of us. There is three of us. There's my brother, John, who's eight years older than me, and sister, Clett, who's six years older than me, and then me. So there's three of us just. But my mother comes from a big family. Right. My dad comes from... There's four of them.
0: And what what did your parents
1: do for a living? Mm. My dad was a post office engineer. Right. So he was one of those guys that climbed up the telegraph poles and put, run the line into the house and connected your house to the, the telephone exchange. So he did that around Northern Ireland, you know, mostly in the County Down, County Antrim area. Right, okay. But he would go far, further afield, depending. I think they were sort of assigned certain, um, certain areas, you know. Uh, so that was perfect for him because my dad was a big talker. And he would go out and just you know speak to farmers all day and put lines in for them and stuff. So he did that. And my mother was a seamstress, a tailor, who um, used to work in sweatshops in the sixties. Right in Belfast, you know, making Ben Sherman stuff and things like that. And then she got a job in the local army depot because Hollywood's a garrison town. Yeah. So there's the palace barracks, and then there's the ordnance. And the ordnance depot was where all the equipment's kept, and she got a job in the remi there as in the stitching room, so that she would, um, you know, uniforms, re- repair
0: uniforms and bulletproof vests and stuff like that. And when what what kind of when you were at school, what was driving you? What was exciting you when you were at school? Were you would you say that you were a good student? You just died into everything at school, or were there specific things that that pulled you? I um. Are you talking about primary or secondary? Yeah, I'm talking about primary early on. Primary,
1: I just remember trying to look for fun at all times. It was always about having fun for me, you know. And I think because looking back, I think I'm I'm an emotional person, so I was emotionally attached to teachers. If I liked them or didn't like them, I came from that culture of um, spare the rod and spoil the child. Right. You know, I'm over fifty, so you know, I was a child of school. You could you could. Strapped by the teacher, or smacked by the teacher, and stuff like that. So we used to have like some teachers that were strict and some that weren't. Um, my leanings were always towards the more literature side of things. I was good at geography and history and English and things like that. Mathematics and science just made, left me blank. You know, I just couldn't cope with it at all, really. And that was mainly in secondary school. I don't really have much of a memory of primary school apart from just playing. But yeah just playing football which
0: is kind of what it should be really I, I have very bad memories of like that you know yeah and when when did drama come into your life was that did that happen at school or no, not no not at all was that ever on the curriculum because I've been speaking to a few people and it hasn't been on their curriculum no at all, it
1: wasn't it, um, I went to uh, at 11 I went to a Catholic boys boarding school up the Antrim coast um, at Conleth Hill right I went there as well but um, don't remember Conleth he was younger a good bit younger than me But they had um, a drama, like a drama society sort of thing where they would put on Gilbert and Sullivan, Pirates of Penzance and stuff like that uh, at at the end of every year. But it was never... That was never my remit. I was a really four to the floor type of wee lad, you know. I liked football. I liked... um, I discovered cigarettes at nine. Discovered alcohol at 13. I was a wee lad. Yeah. I was a wee raker, you know, but I was... I think my aspirations was to be like all the other lads, but I wasn't. I was more sensitive and slightly outside of stuff. You know, I was. A, I thought deeply about stuff and I felt deeply about stuff. But um, So there was no real... I didn't have any childhood epiphanies. I, my my epiphanies as far as, you know, finding a path didn't come to much later till I was older, you know, till I was a man, really. And,
0: and at that age, what were the aspirations? Were they the usual sort of... Fireman, astronaut, things like that, or was there other things? Football? I didn't have any aspirations.
1: Really? I didn't have any aspirations. It was, um, again, confusing. I think I was, um, I don't know. I think I, wa- I'd, I was one of those kids that, you know, I would have just, I'd be obsessed with something one week and then I wasn't interested the next week and I'd be obsessed with a new thing and it was, <laughs> you know, yeah. And I didn't really have, like, my dad was quite solitary. My dad was the type of man that the stuff that he was interested in were um, solitary endeavours. So he was into fishing, he was into shooting, he was into photography and developing his photographs and he was into things like that and gardening. So there were stuff that he went and did on his own away, you know. Um, And I rarely joined in or was rarely invited, you know. Uh, And my mother was, you know, they were always working. So you were out playing all the time. So you were climbing trees and playing football and on smoke rings and stuff like yeah. that, trying to chase we girls or whatever, you know, they were, they were quite sort of analog pastimes, you know, and living in a housing estate. So, you know, living in a housing estate in Northern Ireland, you were constantly, it was like its own environment, it was its own microculture, you know, so you were just trying to survive within that. And then uh, and then I went away at 11. So, um, where did you go at 11? I went eleven to this boarding school. Right. Uh, and to, how did you find that being away? You know got there Made made a big hue and cry about wanting to go because all my mates were going and I didn't want to oh, miss really? out. And then I got there and realised it was a massive, massive, massive mistake and it was too late and uh, I had to stay there for five years. Wow. And um, so that was a real pivotal change in my life when I look back on it, you know.
0: Did you feel you did a lot of growing up in that time while you were away at boarding school? Well, I did... I, you find that I find this. This is all
1: in retrospect, you know. That was I was, I was quite frightened, and I was qu- quite out of my depth, and I was very lonely, and I had a, a sense of that nobody was going to save you. You know, my my brother had left and went to England by this stage. I had a sister who was getting on with her life. I had mum and dad who weren't around, so I felt quite singular. And I remember that feeling of a loneliness and not being able to make it. That feeling go away and being in an alien environment and not being able to leave and having to make the best of it yeah so I think in you know nowadays that's that's given me an independent spirit you know it's given me a sense of I can be quite sentimental about stuff but at the same time I can be quite stoic about stuff as well you know um so yeah they were and I didn't like what they were serving me you know I didn't once i went I went to grammar school, i went to that I had that education, and I thought that I don't really want what you're what you're trying to train me for, you know I didn't want to be a a barrister or a lawyer or a teacher or a banker or a you know I didn't want any of that, those things, so there was nothing else around you know, and I didn't have those Yoda moments there wasn't an older man who. Older person who said, "You know, some young man, you're quite funny. Or you, you know, maybe you should try acting, or you should try stand up." I'd never had that moment. That never came until.
0: So, were there any aspirations at that time when you were at the boarding school? No, you, was, did you feel quite lost, but yeah, also trapped at the same time? Yeah, I felt quite um, out of my
1: depth. Right. Really, yeah, I felt out of my depth. I felt that I couldn't. And there was a um, there was a lot of discipline in the school, so you were getting. And I was a wee shite as well. You know, I was because. I'd sort of re- I was in the process of rejecting everything around me, and become a bit of a class warrior because I came from a housing estate and now I was in a middle class environment. I just everything was either embarrassing or made me angry. You know, yeah. my dad's car wasn't good enough. We, the job he did wasn't good enough. It was. I'd sort of I'd find, I'd find myself becoming quite defensive. So you had quite a rebellious streak. Yeah. 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 Um, it's hard to be rebellious in a boarding school because there's nowhere to run through. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's quite hard, you know. Um, and But at the same time, you know, I developed skills
0: that that I realised only later that I realised that I was funny. I could tell a story. What, what, what did that come about? How did that come about that you realised that you could spin a yarn and tell a joke? And... Well, I could, I could make my dad laugh
1: um, and I could make my sister laugh uncontrollably. And that was something that I used a lot, and I gathered a lot of jokes you know in the primary school, I remember uh you know just gathering jokes I was a great I could tell you like twenty thirty forty jokes at a time, just tell- and i, I remember being able to filter jokes that I thought weren't funny enough, and I became quite a snob about what what was funny right know? yeah, and if I could you know if I could make my dog go <laughs> that wasn't good enough, I wanted him to burst out laughing, you know Of course um. And I remember looking back, again, this is all in hindsight, really, thinking about, you know, watching the stuff that really made him laugh and trying to work out what it was uh, on, a, on an emotional level, not an analytical level. So I could watch him watching Droopy, for example, cartoons or Bugs Bunny and watch him cry with laughter like a child. And yet he was quite a stern person when he when he turned. But when laughter came in, he just... All that facade went away. Yeah, so I, I, that was my key to my relationship with my father was making him laugh, um, which I was desperate to have. was a relationship with him, you know. Um, and he was a fatherless man; his dad died when he was seven. So, I think he was quite lost as a dad. How to connect outside of your, outside of your duty, mm. you know. Outside of the, within his duty, he was an amazing man, you know all the hours that God sent. He worked and he'd done whatever needed to be done. But those little extra bits that we can do now with our kids or that we take sort of for granted, he struggled with,
0: you know. Um, that connection.
1: Yeah, and just be, you know, and he could be philosophical about stuff and work out why. And I remember him saying to me, I never had a dad, I don't know how to, what it's like to be a dad. And me thinking, you know, when I was in, thinking that was an excuse. Mm. When I was, you know, uh, pubescent and rebellious, just thinking, I just make an excuse. And now he's dead I can. I realise that it's him. He was trying his best to be truthful. He was trying his best to get across to me that this, the fatherhood and manhood was, you know, it's a it's a confusing time. Just because you're older, does and your voice is deeper, doesn't mean to say you know everything. Well, you know? no, and you know, now I know that. Well, I suppose um, if
0: we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, especially in what we do, you yeah. know, the great one of the great things is we never stop learning. Yes you know, f- from who you work with, from job to job, and you have to sort of, you have to play around all the time. And, you know, going back to what you were saying at primary school, the great thing is you had fun. We were playing. Yeah. And we used to get the things like, you know, I came from a, my
1: parents moved to the housing estate, and it was that which happened all over Great Britain. know, They cleared out the slums and they built these, these housing estates on the outskirts of towns, mm. and they moved people from the inner city to the outskirts of those. You know, every city's got that. You know, and so the people that moved to this housing estate it was brand new houses, and they'd come from a culture of you left your front door open you knocked on the doors and you went in and out of each other's houses and you were borrowing stuff now so they brought that to the housing estate, so them so on a Friday and Saturday night, my parents and a group of their friends would go up to the center of Belfast and go to a dance or go to a, go drink and then they would come back to the house with a carry out and fish and chips and the sister would be babysitting and the kids would be dragged out of bed. And, you would, you know, if you could sing or you could tell a joke or do a dance, you were put in front of the fire to do a song and a dance in front of the adults. And that was my ticket to ride. I could, I could stay up late. So was,
0: was that also where the first sort of performing thing yeah. started? Yeah, wow. definitely,
1: definitely. And if you were rubbish, they would tell you.
0: <laughs> I told so, you know, mean, of you were
1: shit they've got <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> you know I mean? you were they were brutal. So um so yeah, I would sing and tell every story and, you know, tell a tell a joke or yeah, joke my Michael and I'd get up in front of, the, get up in front of the fire and they'd try and tell from a chair, you weren't like get up and come in front of the fire and you'd have to do it in front of the fire. So then years later when I got into stand up, that was you know it was I remember the I remember being eight or nine, walking along the street with my dad and thinking of a joke and saying to my dad is this funny and my dad said what is it and I said I'm a catholic buddhist I've got all the guilt but I rise above it and he pissed himself laughing and he went where'd you hear that I said i just thought of it and he went no you haven't and it was like I get again to be dismissed for that you couldn't have thought of that yeah I took from that as like a hungry man, like sucking the last bit of meat off a bone going, oh, I must be good at that because the adults don't believe me and I know it's the truth, so I'm going to hold on to that one.
0: That's and a very I, mature gag for a... and that in the,
1: And that, uh, that became part of my routine when I was doing stand-up. Did it? Yeah. So can I just go back to boarding school? So yeah. What age did you leave boarding school? 16. Went to College of Business Studies in Belfast, which was another disaster I got asked to leave you know just I was mad stone mad I was just all I wanted I was like a dog that was wanting off the lead at all times but didn't know where you wanted to go just wanted to run yeah just wanted to run with my tail in the air you know what I mean and by that stage it was like we were now 1979 1980 in Belfast hunger strike was on stuff like all that was going on around us it was a big army presence yeah you could go out for lunch and decide to go to the pub and not come back to class again and say you were pee checked by the Brits. you know, So they wouldn't have any... Not negative, they, could they couldn't tell. You know, So there was a lot of that going on, just me all of a sudden after being five years in a boarding school, now in this co-ed environment where there was girls around and I was 16, was the youngest at the college. And I was just... My head was just spinning.
0: And there were loads of excuses not to be able to attend that you... Yeah, hadn't. and also that thing of...
1: You know, I... My concentration levels were just, I was a flibbertigibbet. gibbet. I was always out the window. I was always looking for something else. This was tedious and boring, you know. And the problem with that is, as I've got older, is I now realise that part of the education thing is if you, your O levels of your GCSEs is getting you to sit in a room and study, right, on your own. And then remember that, and regurgitate that in the pressure of a of a of a test situation, and then you you hone that down to subjects that you're good at, and then you're able to go out and explore those subjects, and again do your tests and study, and then when you go to university, then you pick a subject that might be your it might be your ambition to to follow for the rest of your life, and you become an expert at that, and you do your own research and it's on on, on your own stream and stuff like that. I had none of that. So what, I've, what I have even now, as an older man, to sit in a room on my own and study, to learn lines is one of the hardest things for me. Oh, still now, still even now, when that's a focus for you. Because I never focused in the past because I rejected that part of the education. I wasn't interested in GCSEs and A-levels and in, I never went to further education. I wanted to get into life. Mm. But actually what I lost by not, not furthering my education wasn't the knowledge it was the ability to sit and concentrate. That's what education gives you. You know your your A level O uh, in whatever subjects that you took aren't paying you any favours now. You're not getting anything from that. No. But what you've got is through further education is the ability to sit down and concentrate. Do you understand? Yeah. That's what I lost. And that's why those days are, you know, when I have to sit in every day's a school day, I actually sit down with the script and learn lines or sit and write when I'm,
0: like I'm trying to write something now. It's really hard. But even when I, I mean during my exams, I walked away with hardly anything because I was again. I was like you. I was looking out the window yeah. because I knew that I only had one focus, and that was because I wanted to get out of this town and I wanted to go and train to be an actor. Yeah. That was my only focus. Everything else. I came. wanted to get
1: out of this town, but there was no other. Yeah, you didn't. No, you didn't know where you wanted. I to I didn't go. know what I, what was what I was wanted to do. You know, and because of that, then what happens? It life fills those gaps in for you. Life all of a sudden gives you the. Well, if you're not going to concentrate on something, we'll give you something to concentrate on. It's called yeah. life. Yeah. So it comes up and slaps you upside of the head. You know.
0: So what first came and slapped you upside of the head? Uh, my girlfriend getting pregnant. At what age was that? Nineteen twenty. Twenty.
1: I'd just come to London. Uh, came to London in nineteen eighty three. Nineteen eighty three. And what were you doing f- for a job at this time? On the dole. Right. It was the 80s yeah. in London, it was no work, it was nothing. I was um I had I was living um, I was living at home with my dad and it wasn't going well. I'd been all that time of being away, we were now not used to each other, and now I'd come back at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years of age, this uh young mad buck that my dad was just like you know the thing it's a fear, you know? Yeah. Is your young strong son turning up? My dad
0: just we didn't We didn't cope with each other very well did they, f- did, you, did they feel that you were out of control?: I think they felt that I, well, they rightly
1: felt that I had screwed up my education, you know they rightly felt that and also that um, I'd wasted their money. Not that they would have said that, but I knew for, my shame and my guilt was yeah. that I had wasted their hard-earned money, mm-hmm. you know, and they didn't have any money. We lived in a council house they, they were a post office engineer and a stitcher. And all of a sudden, they're they're having to have their wages to send this. They must have seen something in me that that, that that they must have seen the intelligence and the application in me that this wee lad's got something, but didn't know what to do with it and didn't know how to. So they facilitated my dreams.
0: And, what and does, my what, dreams
1: were just flippity jibbit dreams. So bless yeah. them. You know, um, that's part of my drive now is that, you know, my kids. Work hard. My kids are really good at the jobs that they do, my older kids, because of the influence of myself and my, or my ex-wife and myself and my, my kids from my second marriage will be the same because I've learnt my lesson and I work hard at my job because I was blessed at 30, 29, 30, to find a career path that changed everything. That was my epiphany. Yeah. You know? I waited long enough for the miracle to turn up and it did. And how did that come about? Again, through friends. You know, there's, a, you know, you know, you think about, I've wasted my life, you know, I've wasted my life in my teenage years and I've wasted my 20s. I got my, got my girlfriend up the duff. I was homeless. I'd, no, I'd pissed my career up the wall or my, my education up the wall. i disappointed my parents. I'd stole their money off them. You know, I'd done all, you know, in far, as far as their school fees had done, you know,
0: I'd ruined it all for them you know this and then Did we sorry to interrupt but we still carrying a lot of guilt at that time uh, because of uh, that you
1: know i think it, the guilt really kicked in when um when i was married with a child and all of a sudden i realized all the stuff my dad warned me about was now here and i didn't listen i thought i was i was the clever one i yeah. thought i was a smart arse i thought i had all the answers and now life has slapped me upside the head and my dad's looking at me going, like I remember him saying to me when I held my son Dylan in my arms and said and that the day he was born and said to my dad, What do you think? And my dad looked at me and he says, I son the toothpaste side of the tube now, you won't be pushing that back in again. <sighs> and that was the that was the truth. Yeah. You know, that was the truth. Now I was now I was faced with truth and and I run around like a headless chicken trying to make ends meet and try to hold down this this life and was homeless in London and was in you know it was in DHSS hotels and B&B's in Paddington and you know living that life of you know real transitory, transitory life and then got a job as a cycle courier and rode a bicycle and
0: so you went from the dole to be a cycle courier yeah yeah and went out on the streets every day and just because earned, earned, earned. you were earning money. Because yeah, and did you feel you had to do a lot of growing up in that time? Because you went right. I've got a kid now. I've got to. I've got to provide. Or oh, were you still? Were you still, still that kid looking out the window? Yeah, to I was some still. Respect? I was
1: still the selfish wee lad who still wanted it all. You know, I was still the selfish wee lad who was well. Yeah, but my mates are still like partying, so I'm still going to go out partying. You know, I had that selfish gene in me. Yeah. Know, that addictive gene in me that just was compulsed uh, had had a compulsion to carry on, you know, but what I didn't realise was that the, actually what I was doing was, um, was it was a, a silent apprenticeship that I was serving that eventually would pay dividends, you know, so I was very social. I was out all the time. I was in pubs and clubs and kind of clubbing and raving and cycling and, you know, I had loads of mates and, but I, would and in my first marriage, me and Merrilees, we had loads of friends who were from all over the world. You know, when we came to London, we stayed in these uh, B&Bs in Paddington and Lancaster Gate. And in these hotels, there was people from all over the world. So those people with their, their perceptions of you, you were now exotic. I wasn't exotic in Hollywood, you know, as much as I wanted to be and wanted to be special and different. I was just another gabshite, Yeah. Another buck idiot. But here... I was something special and exotic, you know.
0: Uh, Did you like that attention? Loved
1: it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I loved the anonymity of London, I loved that sense of, you know, anything could change. You Maybe it's just around the corner, something's just around the corner. I had that sense of something. I'm, if I keep searching these streets, I'm going to find the place that's the epicentre. I'd done all my drinking in Soho, I'd done, or Portobello. I didn't go into the boring suburbs. I was in the thick of it, I was in the thick of it. Yeah. I wanted to be in the thick of it, I wanted it to, to splash on me. I wanted it, you know what I mean. And but also, that perception, other people's perceptions of you go, Do you know what you do? That thing that you do, and you go, What thing? That thing that you do, that's great, or that thing that you say is funny, really. So, the last person to recognize my talent was me, the last person to be motivated to do anything about my talent was me because of that a, a sense of low self esteem. Born out of, you know, screwing up my mother and father's opportunities they gave me, and, you know, being silly enough to get my girlfriend pregnant, and, you know, all that low self esteem that had seeped into me and the guilt that I'd ruined stuff. I I was, it was, I couldn't see that through that to me, the essence, what was my essence. So eventually I started listening to people, people who, who I trusted, friends who were. From other parts of the world, but just happened to live in London.
0: So, how did you, how long were you been a cycle courier before you went, right, I'm going to do some stand up comedy? 10 years. 10 years? And what was, what was the thing? It couldn't have been just self motivation. It was a friend of mine, Stuart, um, who, uh,
1: um, who had aspirations as, act, as an actor right. and it hadn't worked out for him. And he was a very talented um, China restorer. And he lived a very... Sol- he lived a very solitary life. Still does. Um, and we... I was... There was a courier magazine called Moving Target. And I used to send it anonymous letters into them. <laughs> winding up various... Because it was, it was out amongst the courier community. Right. Like career community. So I used to send these um, silly stories in. And then I applied to be... Uh, Can I write for you? And the guy, Buffalo Bill, who's still out and about, he went you fucking I've been writing I've been sending those anonymous letters in. so anyway I started writing for him and I ended up getting my own column and writing these funny I had my own page and I'd do like uh, stupid reviews of sandwich shops in the area and what stuff like that you know and then I showed it to a friend of mine Kim who worked for BBC she was a secretary to Harry Thompson God rest his soul yeah and she he was uh, the producer on Weekending do you remember Weekending I do so they had a, a slot for non-commissioned writers. So people like Stuart Lee and people like that who were and Richard Herring and, and Al Murray and Ben Moore were commissioned writers for it. And so then you would sort of wait outside and they would come and she'd got me sort of, why don't you try that? And I got a couple of jokes on and got paid for them, which was enough for me to think maybe I can... Maybe I've got something in this.
0: Wow, so that really spurred you on. Yeah, and then
1: Stuart said to me, you should do stand-up, man. Do stand-up. You're always being like this in the pub. You're always in this in social situation. I was always dominating, you know what I mean? I'd be in a social situation and I would be the funny one. And if you were the funny one, we would be funny together and then we'd be funny, have a funny-off nearly, you know what I mean? Yeah. We'd get to that and we'd, we would
0: bond on that. But there is a massive difference of the bloke that's being funny in the pub. Yes. You get him up on stage and pop a spotlight on yeah. It ain't funny.
1: But then I did get
0: on stage and
1: I was funny and it was that was my epiphany. I had a moment I came off stage that night and I thought everything's changed now. Everything's changed. This is I found something. I couldn't sleep. I was um,
0: was the adrenaline just pumping roaring through?
1: Roaring
0: through me. Roaring through me. How long was your first set? Four minutes. Was it just was it just an open mic? Open mic t- at the V D clinic in, in Belsize Park. Now this may, I may have completely got my research wrong or it might not be true. Did somebody uh, want you to do it as a bet? Well, it was a sort of a bet, you know,
1: um, the shorthand is yes. Right. The longhand is Stuart persevered with me and he, you know, he'd signed me up for, for, um, for courses and stuff like that and I just didn't, wasn't really interested, you know. And, He just kept persevering, bless him, you know. And we, he said, Look, there's this. So he he would say, Look, I find how you do this. Time out. They have open spot nights. You ring up. You know, what you should do is ring up and see if you can get on. And I went, All right. So I ran this place, a VD clinic, from his, from Stuart's flat. And the guy, Kevin Anderson, who's married to Joe Caulfield, who's a stand up. Yeah. And uh, he's a gruff sort of. Clash fan, who will still get the flat top and leather jacket, you know, from, uh, from Scotland. And uh, he said, We're full up this week. And I went, Well, and Stuart Come down. I said, Well, can I come down? And have it? He said, All right, well, you'll put you e plus one on the door, come down. So Stuart says, You should. We went down to the gig, and Stuart said, You should try and get up. You could do this. And I go, All right, well, he said, Go on, bet you you'll get up. I mean, All right, I'll get up. Sorry, I'll get up next week. I'll see if he's got a spot next week. So Kevin had let us in. We we're standing at the bar, and then he came past me, and he went, "What did I say to you?" And I said, "Oh, you said it was you were a fool this weekend, but you might have a spot next week." And he said, "All right." He went away, and he came back, and he says, um, "Somebody's dropped out. You're on first after the break."
0: Oh, and that was it? Did when he said that? Did your heart go into you? My arsehole started playing the clarinet at yeah. that <laughs> stage. <after> Bilk Stranger <laughs> on the Shore. um <laughs> yeah it was just because you know that's it, it's, it just, you know it's, it it's
1: like a it's like a sky jump it was like it had that feeling of oh my god that's it I heard I think it was Will Smith said something I read somewhere the other week where he told a story that you know you're sitting around your mates and you talk about why don't we do a sky jump and everybody goes yeah 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 and then you say yeah okay I'll do it and then that week later turns up and the night before you can't sleep and you're full of fear, and you get into the onto, you get down to the airport, the aerodrome, and then you get into the plane, and you're full of fear. And you get up to the top, and then you open the door, and you're, you're, it feels like your are miles up, and you're just catatonic with fear. And next minute, you're out, and you're through the fear into bliss, and that's where it is. You're in bliss. Yeah. And you know that's what all the beauty is is getting through the fear to the other side. Get through the fear to the other side and that night to be willing to get up and do it because I'd said I would do it but also maybe somewhere in my mind I knew this is a chance maybe this is maybe what they're saying is true maybe and I think deep down inside there was a part of me believed that I could and maybe I was I I should do this stuff and I got up and I made a joke about spotlights being in my face makes me feel homesick and everybody just they're on your silence side and immediately. And boom, there was an explosion, which was a bit like standing in front of the fire in front of my man and dad's drunken mates, making them laugh. Yeah. So I knew I was in because I knew there's a purity in that. People aren't laughing. You can tell when people are laughing when they're patronising. You can tell when people are laughing because you what you've said is funny, not intellectually funny. It's, it's funny. It's smashed them in the guts. Yeah. And that's the laughter I'm after. That was the laughter that all those years of being a child have been. Being homeless or whatever, when you're sitting around with people who don't have to fucking like you, who would rather dish you make fun of you than with you? Yeah. To turn them, and you still have this reputation of being somebody who can who can you know who can do the do? To then transmitting that onto the onto the stage and at working. That was that was the portal that I jumped into. That's what it think changed.
0: During that four minutes, do you think you immediately found your stand-up persona, no, no, but I, I find a um, an in. a reason to be there, right? I find
1: that an excuse to be there, a right to be there, and a focus for. Once. But also, then that was the start of the the uh, the embarrassing um, apprenticeship of doing open spots and doing as many open spots as you can and dedicating yourself to it and down on your arse. And dying like where you're now, you're walking home, and all you can hear is your heart, the blood in your ears, just going. What are you doing, man? You've just humiliated yourself in public. you know, that feeling because I've got pride as well.
0: Well, yeah, you know,
1: and um, and then not being able to sleep at night, <laughs> just sitting in the dark, just going, what have I done? What have I done? And then going out the next night and smashing it again, and going, what the what the fuck's going on here? And slowly but surely the... The desk gets smaller, and the the wins or the 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 one alls after extra time. You know what I mean? Just sort of getting through it, leaving the stage with your ego intact or your your
0: pride intact. Because you're there training, you're holding that so Now you're training. Sort of now you're
1: training. Now you're doing your. Now you're doing the ring work. Now you're doing the your ring, and then I, I I signed up for a newcomers competition in Edinburgh.
0: After how many, um, how long was this? Are we talking within six months? Six months. Yeah. That's that's quite a speedy trajectory yeah. towards. Once I'd done that gig,
1: I knew that there was a there was a job to be done. I had a focus now. You know, I'm riding a bike. I was one of the best riders in London. I was probably in the top twenty fastest riders in London. I was good at my job, but it's 6 You're just going round. You were still currying at this point. Yeah, you're still. You're only going round in circles. It's not a career, you know. And now I'd found something that was actually had a trajectory that was. Now all of a sudden it was like, whoa, you've got, you can go. You know you can go with this. All that stuff that's behind you now, all that life experience, it's now it makes sense. Now it's got a reason. You know, none of that was wasted. None of those homeless years, none of those uh, pregnancy years, none of those, you know, standing in front of the fire, none of those pissing pissing up your education. All of that's now material. Yeah. All of that's gold you're not going to be standing on stage talking about fucking cats and dogs. You're going to be talking about your life and you've lived your life. You're living a good. Li- you're living a really interesting life.
0: Did you feel a real sense of achievement when all that, that came into your mind and you, that focus? You weren't that kid sort of looking out the window anymore and being a flippity-jibber. Did you feel, I've got a purpose now? I felt I- like
1: I'd opened the door and walked into a room and it was a room that I wanted to be a part of. It was like a sixth form common room that was really big and I was part of it but I wanted to be on the big table. I wanted to be up amongst them. I wanted to be rubbing shoulders with the big boys. I she wanted, didn't
0: feel intimidated.
1: I did. I did feel, and I felt um, like I shouldn't be there. And it felt like, but then when you're on stage, you're on stage, you know, and when you come off stage, you're f- and then you're the daddy. Yeah. It's beforehand when your, your nerves are going, what are you doing? You're an idiot. You should be at home. Why are you just, what are you doing? this? is fucking a stupid idea. And then you jump and you go into the bliss. And it's, fuck, I'm the daddy, I love this. This is the best job in the world. And you come off stage, go bam, 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 like Caesar going down the Appian Way. And then it slowly subsides. And then somebody goes, nice gig time. I go, thanks, mate. And you're, you're a bit humble. And you go, it's another day in paradise. It's good. And I'm, <laughs> three, and I'm not fucking, I haven't wasted my life, you know? And I'd done the competition. And, um, and I got through to the final. Right. And then uh, I nearly won. It was a split decision between me and Dylan Moran. And they gave it to Dylan because he was younger and they assumed because he was younger he hadn't been going as long and Dylan had been going longer than me. Right. He'd been going about a year and a half, two years by stage. stage. Um, but I, I had no resentment towards it whatsoever. I was so happy about this. This is just beyond my Wildest Dream stuff. And Kim Kinney, who booked the comedy store, who was one of the judges, came up and said, I voted for you, I booked the comedy store, year you'll never do an open spot at the comedy store I'm going to put you straight in doing 20s and I'm going to book you in into the old comedy store before it moves so you can say you've done the old comedy store wow and my first gigs at the comedy store was a weekend a fully paid weekend doing 20 minutes with Phil Jupitus Jack D, uh, and um, Arthur Smith and Lee Evans and when I turned up Kim Kinney was the back bar used to be this back bar at the comedy store it's now the Ninety Nine Club and yeah. um, Storm Nightclub, but there used to be a back bar. And I went in, and Kim Kenny, who's really funny, um, Scottish camp, bloke, really cut, in really funny. And I come in, he, he just popped a bottle of champagne as I come off stage. says, where the fuck have you been? And, gave a <laughs> of and I just thought this is just amazing. Like that night when the, because it was a split decision, they were asking. The audience, while the judges were re-deliberating, who do you think's won? And I'm standing backstage with Dylan Moran, and they're shouting Dylan, and the audience is shouting Smiley, and they're shouting Dylan, and they're shouting Smiley, and my head again went. It's this has changed again. This is another epiphany. This is another move. This is another threshold that you're not coming back from. Yeah. This is another you know, quantum leap forward. It's moved up a level again. Again, because 500 people are shouting your son's name because my son was called Dylan Smiley. All right. So it was all those moments i just gone, I'm, I'm always looking for the spiritual link. I'm always looking for that <laughs> lovely little universal bit where it goes chum, chum, chum. Boom, there you go, big lad. There's a sign. There's a sign. What are you going to do with that sign now? You know? And then that was a, that year was 93. i got into the comedy store, because I was in the comedy store, I'd get into the because I was doing comedy store and junglers. I was getting booked for, I was hardly doing any, Open spots, so I was getting paid straight away. So yeah. I never went back to being a, uh, a courier again. And then um, Seamus Cassidy, who was a commissioner for comedy at Channel 4 at the time, who's uh, from Derry in Northern Ireland, put me into uh, Naked City, which was a music program with Johnny Vaughan and Caitlin Moran, I and it, Collins yeah. and McConey. Yeah. And I was the roving reporter, called, um, had my own little slot called Smiley's People.
0: So you're still doing our version of stand-up, but... No, I was going around
1: interviewing uh, um, people but, at festivals and clubs. But of course, because, because
0: into... you're so quick-witted yeah. with the stand-up, that training would have put you... And we had
1: um, Hoods, who, um, from Kittalt Hood, was the director of Kittalt Hoods um, is director anyway. Right. He was the director of our little slot, so we had a really small team. So we'd just go in and just like bang, 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 just shoot really quickly. It was real guerrilla going to festivals and stuff. There was no set-ups. We'd just go through crowds and I would just bang off people. And um, so that was my, that was my first TV. My first real TV was Late License, which was the, on Channel 4. They'd done a thing called Late License.
0: I vaguely remember it, yeah. Which was like a
1: continuity between uh, programmes. So Lily Savage did one. That was her big, his big uh, Paul Grady's break, and myself and Kevin Day did one. Right. And that was my first ever television.
0: So with no aspirations in the arts whatsoever, you've gone from being in a boarding school, moving to London, cycle courier, stand-up, and it's gone really, really well. When did the acting thought come into your mind, or was that something that was thrown at you?
1: Um, I think the... I think because, again, you know, getting into performing older my and because my material was based on my experiences yeah. as my dad used to say tell the truth it's easy to remember I would tell the truth so I would tell these long stories that I'd been telling people at, you know 5 chill out rooms at 5 o'clock in the morning back at somebody's house after a party I could tell this story and then and I, I knew I'd inter- I could entertain people monged out of their tits so I yeah. could entertain a room full of people so then I went from condensing that down into something that was bites for a stand-up gig to expanding it to a one-man show in Edinburgh. So I used to take these up to Edinburgh so they became slightly more dramatic every time I brought them up and I would do characters, I would play my man, I would play my dad, I would play my aunts and uncles. So Then that was becoming more, I was starting to get excited about the potential of one-man plays as opposed to one-man shows. Right.
0: You know? Were you at any point were you starting to feel unfulfilled with the stand-up or was it just that it was just taking you in a slightly different direction? It was,
1: I think with stand-up, stand-up for me as I got older was not as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. I really enjoyed being on stage and I really enjoyed the the moment of being a a stand-up comedian but everything around it I found pretty boring, you know, I loved hanging out with people and loved being the life and soul of the party and all that. But it again it felt slightly like like being a cycle career. It felt like you were going round in circles, you know. Unless you were wanting to convince somebody at Channel Four to give you one man to give you a show for television yeah. or radio. But then that's not stand up then. No, you know what of I mean? course. So and also as I got older I was realising that I'm a, a storyteller, you know, and and I was living by that stage my wife and I had split up and I was living in rented accommodation in North London with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. And so we were all starting out. And so we were all like, you know, you're like when, you, when you're when you living in a flat with other lads, we're, it's a big love in, it's a big yeah. romance. We all love each other. We're all like enjoying each other's company. We're staying up late with ba- bottles of Jack Daniels and having the crack and playing Jenga. But also point, yet again, pointing out, oh, that's funny. Do that. Or Simon was always making little films and Nick was playing characters and I was, you know, being visceral and dark and funny, and you know, and and just happened to be that Simon started writing Spaced him and Jessica wrote Spaced, so then Tires come into that because he wrote a character based on me and then asked me to play the character. So that's sort of where the acting went. But by that stage, I was.
0: And did you ever go back to stand up then?
1: Yeah, I was still doing stand up. Are oh, you were still doing it at the still time? Stand up, yeah, but I'd. I'd I'd done. A, I'd written a trilogy of plays that had taken up the Edinburgh. Ninety ninety seven was one called Confessions of a Catholic Buddhist, which was like a, a like a storytelling show, well, sort of based around stand in front of the fire. Right, and then the second one was called Recycling, like re dot dot cycling about a, a like a, a slightly uh, Beckett esque uh, courier waiting for a job that doesn't turn up, and he, so he's speaking. To the audience about his life as a courier, you know, um, about a man who's too old for the job, and then the third one was called the, Party, the Parting Glass, which was about a man left behind at a wake, and it turns out he's the dead body, but he tells his story. Right. right. So, um, and that became that each one became more theatrical and more dramatic, and I had a director, and I had a, you know, I had props and stuff, and you know.
0: The first of those plays with that title, obviously that takes us back to when you were eight years yeah. old, you were working with Dad. Did you find doing that play and writing it was something of a cathartic experience with Yeah, that?
1: very much, very much. But uh, also not writing it. You know, I've, I've always had a problem with writing stuff down because But getting back to that, you know, not being able to concentrate. You know, I'm married to a writer and she's upstairs writing and editing all day long. You know, that's what she does. Whereas if I write 500 words, I want to get a taxi into the West End and tell everybody about it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so when I write stuff, I don't want to edit because I've written it because the lazy bastard in me doesn't want to change it, <laughs> you know? So uh, I, I, what I have is the ability to, to be oral. I've got the oral tradition of the, what I would say, the shanakee of, uh, of the Irish oral tradition. So my plays, um, I never wrote them down. So I would have a framework of and, and have the subject that was talking. So the more I did them, I knew where I was going with the story. But I would embellish the story as I went along or yeah. edit it down because the stand-up in me wants to find the holy grail of the, the, the tightest sentence, the quickest line to the joke because I've got a Belfast sense of humour. So it's the shortest distance between the setup and the punchline, you know. And even letters and just take all the watery, take all that fl- all the, the flop out of it, the flotsam and jetsam, get all that out of it, and get the meat, get onto it, get a ping,
0: you know. Oh, so because of that, obviously it was evolving, and it was obviously changing every night. Then really, yeah. And it was
1: getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So actually, by the but if it had written it down before Edinburgh, it would have stayed like that, and it would just become a, a pat, yeah, every night
0: theatre, which you probably would have been bored of I'd very been quickly. Bored
1: shitless. So then I would have had to find a place to to pretend that I wasn't bored, whereas... And I'm terrible at pretending I'm not bored, you know? Yeah. I'm bored, I'm fucking bored, you know? I am what I am type thing. So by the end of Edinburgh, I had this jewel that, that I that whittled and whittled and whittled and got beautiful, you know? Got that, let's do another one, you know? And uh, that was sort of what was the exciting part. So for me as a stand-up, going around doing gigs was fantastic, but to have a show... To look forward to to do in Edinburgh as your little side project. You know, I'm doing this, and I would talk it up, and you know, and sit in situations with friends. We go, "What are you going to do next? What happens then? What about the story then?" And you know, have a director. this guy Ken McClymont who was just, who is an amazing guy. He does a lot of fringe directing. He's like the Whispering Assassin. He just, he's Scottish. He just listens and asks you really poignant, quiet questions that <coughs> nail you. And he would just, like I went, the first time I met him, I went, I don't write anything down, so you're not going to get any script. And I went, all right. <laughs> he says, so how do you do it? And goes, I just talk. He says, okay then. Switched on the tape recorder, talk. So he would just wow. put me on the spot. So then we'd, he, he was the in, in-house director at Old Red Lion. So I'd go there every day and get and we'd bang out the skeleton of a show.
0: Old Red Lion in London? Yeah. Right. And he'd done
1: recycling and uh, parting glass. And I learned a lot from Ken. I learned a lot of, you know, getting to the, you know, using the stage properly, using the lighting properly. Get the there when you're going to say that line, you know, because the light where it hits the side of your face is beautiful. Or, you know, there we're going to have an uplight there, so get for that bit. And you know, I when you turn turning, And then I would go, you know, because I wasn't trained, I would say, this is brilliant. And then what? Because <laughs> 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 that was a, all, all of a sudden this, the theater stuff—if you'd have been trained, you'd have known all about that. But I, I was learning stagecraft from this working-class Glaswegian. You know what I mean? So it was like I trusted him. And now we were in this. Now this was another Secret Garden that I was yeah. being invited into, and this is a, another world that has been invited into. That now I was in, in my early thirties, and I was feeling like I was in my, a teenager. I was so excited. Yeah.
0: But you were getting your training, oh, albeit man. in a very, very different way, because you would had loads of stagecraft from that stand-up. Yeah you get so in different 10 way. year
1: cycles actually I was getting exactly what I was needing the universe was giving it to me so I wasn't ready to find my place when I was a teenager I wasn't ready to find my place in my 20s I was ready to find my place uh, towards the end of my 20s end of my 30s end of my 40s that's when you know, you know my dad said to me do have to paint you a picture wee lad and you do I need to have pictures in my head yeah I don't have theories, I have practice, I have, you know, So, and I get really enthusiastic about stuff. Like, I'm talking now and I'm, I'm coming back, I'm, I'm time travelling back to those moments. I'm going up to the old red line and having just scraps of paper and going, what about destiny?" him going, right, give me 10 minutes on your diet. Am I mean, just standing, f- free-forming? And right, neck, right, we'll put that with that. And, and having little post-it notes up on the walls and just creating something. And then taking it up to Edinburgh and people... Giving you a stand innovation at the end of the first night, going,
0: Jesus, none of this is, I can do this. I can do this. And during all that, that's you, you've got so much control over your material, what you put out, when yeah. you put it out, how you put it out. But now you're an actor. Yeah. A lot of that control is taken away. Yeah. You can't really decide when you do that television program or when you do that film. How how do you deal with that? Because I was talking to somebody, it gets, I feel it gets harder as we we get older, even though however much more successful you get in your career, it does, the the sense of control is what I'm trying to get at. How do you deal with that, that lack of?
1: Well, I think that, I think you've got to find another thing. You've got to find another string to your bow. I think if you're an actor who's just waiting for jobs, and you don't do anything else, then it's going to drive you insane. Yeah. If you've got something to take yourself away from that, well, I'm sitting by the phone, nobody's called. Yeah. You know, how come every time I call my agent and put on hold, you I mean, he's talking to somebody else, giving them the job type feeling, you know what I mean? How do we get away from that? And I felt when I get into acting properly, you know, when I got an acting agent and I started going for auditions properly and started getting cast for stuff, I thought I will give myself to this, just like I gave myself to the cycling, just as I gave myself to the stand-up, I don't do anything but this. I'm yeah. going to, I'm, you know, I'm just, I remember saying to my agent at the time, she says, what do you want? And I said, well, I don't want to be wearing a chicken suit and, and dancing around Blue Water, but, you know, I'm going to say no to you very little because I want to trust you. So we're, what we're going to do is have a, a basis of trust. We're going to start from here and we're going to trust if you think, if you said it's good, they'll go with it. And we'll well, you've see.
0: got to form that relationship Yeah, as well. and,
1: and also see it as an apprenticeship. Yeah. So, you know, do those things, learn your lines, turn up, be of service on set, don't be a pain in the arse, you know, don't be distracting people, but also don't be demanding, just get on with your job, be, be an asset, be part of the solution, not part of the problem thing, you know. But slowly but surely, you know, you know over the years, I can feel my sense of the old me as a stand up who had the Edinburgh show to look forward to coming back again and people saying to I me, mean, You should write a book, you should write a film. You you know, when I get into social situations, I'm sitting talking to people are going, Why aren't you writing this down? type thing. You know? Yeah. And I've always fought, farmed that off by saying, Well, listen, I don't feel it's right yet. I, you know, I'm not going to do it because you want me to do it because I've never done that. I've always done it when the time's right for me in the universe.
0: You know, Even what I mean? back to those days when you were a kid and people were telling you, oh, that's funny, you're funny there. Yeah.
1: Or you should do your homework or, you yeah. know what I mean? Those things, I was always quite, you know, if you told me what to do, that would be the thing I wouldn't do. Of course. Because you're frigging telling me, nobody yeah. tells me what to do, you know, type thing, which means you end up cutting off your nose to spite your face. So actually what you learn is, you know, what am I good at and who are the people who are going to teach me? What am I going to learn the most from? So then I had that I've been, I've been writing, on and off, you know, chunks, five pages here or a a story will come into my head, and you know I've now over the past year or two, um, I've got a real urge to, to get a story out, and as you know, I'm writing, I'm co-writing a film, with um, an amazing actor called Susan Lynch. Amazing. Um, I must introduce you to her I think you still good on Actually, you think? yeah well, are you still single
0: maybe that's for another podcast okay <laughs> um, she's a lovely woman
1: she's a lovely woman um, so yeah there, so I've got this and it's I've got the same excitement that I had when I was writing my Edinburgh shows but I know it's a longer process but it's also now i I can find myself when I'm sitting on the tube or i might ride riding my bicycle or I'm walking down the streets I'm thinking of the character and I'm making a note, and I've I started writing, and I thought, well, how can I do it? If I sit with, you know, a Final Draft? i bought Final Draft. I've put it on my, my new MacBook Air. Well, <laughs> there's not a start button where a thing just starts writing for you. You've got to friggin' write the thing, right? So then I start going, oh, character, exter- oh, fuck this, right? So now what I've done is I've got a, a hardback notebook and I'm writing it longhand right, from start to finish. I'm writing it, I'm writing it, I'm writing it. And I've, so far for my character, because there's two characters in the story, it's male and female, so I'm writing the male character so far. So I've got him, he, he's on this journey, and I'm writing about him, and then I've went, oh, there's bits of shit that went in there, but they become flashbacks. So, they can, so now I'm, I'm finding a way of facilitating how I go about it instead of saying, you're wrong for doing that, you need to do it this way. I'm actually saying to me, no, if that's the way you do it, then that's the way you do it, son. Like I would say to my six-year-old daughter or my 11-year-old son, if that's the way you want to do it, mate, you go about it because that's your journey. Yeah. You know? So then when I do do that, I can sit and get that and transcribe it up onto the onto the the, the final draft and, and then that will add stuff and I'll edit that as I'm going along. I need to do that physical pen on paper and notebooks and because I'm still quite analog, I still quite enjoy that getting a nice pen. Yeah, of course. Getting a nice pen, it's gorgeous, man. Getting a nice bit of you know, getting into losing yourself in rhymes for an hour. You know what I mean? That sort of things I, I, I get excited about because I love my clothes and I love my stuff. You know, I've, I've always been into my style and my fashion and my my music and you know, you were saying what did what was your aspirations? You know, I loved dancing. I'm a good dancer, you know. I loved music. I loved my clothes. I, my life was full of so many things yeah. that there wasn't time for to have some career path. That seemed so, you know. Too well thought so out, I suppose. Contrived. Yeah. And that was too poncy, you know what I mean? That wasn't true to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. So even though I was had had a middle-class education, I was a working-class kid who all of a sudden you don't get above your station. Look at him here, you know what I mean? That sort of attitude where you... What is in your heart? Do you
0: feel fulfilled now in, yeah. in the path that you're on? Yeah, I do. I feel blessed.
1: I don't know what fulfilment is, really. I don't have... My angst isn't, you know, overriding. And it's, you know, it, come, it comes and goes. Feelings pass through us, don't they? Yeah, of course. You know, like, you, you can have as many feelings as you want. Just, you know leave the back door open, let them pass through, don't let them sit down and make a cup of tea, you know what I mean? Just let feelings come and go, feelings aren't facts, you know? They're just feelings. So I can easily feel, you know, I was pissed off downstairs because I, I couldn't get that <laughs> cup of coffee in that Ponzi shop, you know what I mean? But that's just a feeling,
0: yeah. you know?
1: And I could, in the old days, I could have let that be... The flavor of the day, yeah. how I'm going to be today, is and that how it confessed, why are you such so pissed off? Because something happened at seven o'clock this morning, and i decided that's that's my, you know, that's my episode. Yeah, in the sitcom that is my shit life. You know what I mean? That would ping up on the screen. You know, bad coffee day. Yeah, and off he goes. Our psychopath has a bad coffee and started killing again. You know, that's shit. You know that. So I think, I feel, I recognise, you know, I've done interviews for a while now where I've been asked about my life and I feel that these help me recognise the path that I'm on. Yeah. You know, and I can see back and go, yeah, you are blessed, mate. You've been blessed. It's not luck. It's blessed, you know, because you can, you can take it and you can do something with it and you don't have to beat yourself up from the stuff of the past and you don't have to worry about the future be in the present and feel blessed and that, that's you know I've got a fantastic relationship with the people who are really important in my life my children and my uh, my wife and my ex-wife that's my extended family my ex-wife is godmother to my two youngest children you know those are real loving people my wives and they've, what they see in me is what I don't see in myself you know, and that's that's a blessing. You know, I'm blessed to have beautiful people around me, and good people. So my duty is to be good to myself and keep keep moving down this line. You know, the fulfillment side of it. I don't know. I don't know what fulfillment is really, unless I'm like a fat Buddha.
0: You know, <laughs> and on that image, <laughs> Michael Smiley, thank you so much, man. Thank him. you, Craig. Thank you, me Well, that was it. That was the Two Shot Podcast with Michael Smiley. That was a fantastic chat. Um, He's such an open guy. Uh, He's very easy to sit down and talk to. Um, I got a lot out of it. I hope you did. I hope you really, really enjoyed it. Um, Look, I know you're probably going to be bored of me saying this, and you're probably already doing it. But look, if you're not, hit subscribe tell people about the two shot podcast me and producer griff do this it's totally self-funded we don't have any sponsors yet no we don't have any sponsors but look follow us on at two shot pod on twitter on instagram you can find us on facebook uh the two shot podcast you can also follow me at c parks 1976 on twitter we're on ACast now we're on itunes you know all that um, what else have I got to tell you? Oh, hello. What's that? It's the door. Who's at the door? It's the splicing block. I can't say it. I fucked it. I went really off road. It's <laughs> the splicing block. It's Go check them out. They're the one that are helping us out with this podcast. Um, what else have I got to tell you? Not a lot. Tune in next week for another fantastic episode. It's going to be very exciting. Trust me. See ya. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.